0: Feeling a bit under the weather tonight, which is probably a blessing in disguise, because it will definitely slow me down. Um, but nonetheless, I'm really happy to be with you, and, you know, we have hit the, the middle mark uh, in this series, and not just because there's five weeks behind us, and counting tonight, five weeks ahead of us, um, but also we've basically finished laying the groundwork, or the framework, or the foundation ...for a Christian sexual ethic, what we're going to do for the next five weeks... ...is start to take what we've learned in the big picture and what we've learned about God's design... ...and apply it to specific situations, many of which are, okay, I see God's design... ...I don't experience that directly in my life, what does that mean for me, okay? Um, Before we can get to the other issues, uh, whether we're going to talk about uh, divorce or homosexuality, or issues of intersex and transgender, before we talk about any of those things, we need to revisit singleness and celibacy. Um, Although this is uh, an issue, a place where many people find ourselves, an application of the things we've learned, it also needs to be our first and primary application because it really will weave into everything we are going to cover um, in future weeks. Now we already touched on some of the significant unique aspects of a Christian view of celibacy and singleness, um, but, but I want to really hammer as we get started tonight that uniqueness, okay, a positive view of unmarried people, okay, a positive view of celibate singleness is unique to New Testament Christianity. This is really easy to see when it's compared to its closest neighbor religions, the ones that are Abrahamic in their origin, the ones that trace back and uh, connect with our own Judeo-Christian heritage. Uh, There are two books that I'll recommend up front tonight that are worth reading on this. There are a lot of books on Christian singleness that are not worth reading. But there are two very good ones. The one that I'm quoting from here, Barry Danilick, Redeeming Singleness, is is basically a broad biblical overview of singleness. It's very good at kind of walking through the scriptures and helping us to wrap our heads around it. For a more practical resource, I would highly recommend Sam Alberry's Seven Myths About Singleness, uh, which is just absolutely tremendous. Um, Both of those I've drawn from quite a lot in my own understanding. But here, why I want to draw your attention to Danilek, this is from the very introduction of his book, and he's the one who points out how unique this positive view is between Christianity and its closest neighbors. He says, this uniqueness is most visible when comparing the view of celibate singleness within Christianity with its closest monotheistic siblings, Judaism, Islam, and Mormonism. In regard to marriage and family values, all four siblings' faiths have much in common, Adherents of all see themselves as champions of family values, all look to the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2 as normative, for understanding the institution of marriage as fundamentally good, and part of the designed order of creation. Conversely, all uniformly condemn the practice of adultery and fornication, at least in part on the teachings of the Pentateuch. Yet on the question of maintaining a life of celibate singleness, Christianity is strikingly different from the other three. Rabbinic Judaism viewed procreation and by implication marriage as a divine commandment on the basis of the creation mandate in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply. A negative disposition towards a life of celibacy persists in modern Judaism. The citation for celibacy in the new encyclopedia of Judaism begins bluntly. Marriage is a commandment in Jewish tradition and celibacy is deplored. The Quran simply or similarly encourages the single person to marry, and Muhammad himself apparently condemned the practice of celibacy as quote exceeding the law of God. Celibate singleness is also explicitly rejected in Mormonism, where undergoing the rite of celestial marriage in the temple is necessary to achieve exaltation in the highest heaven. In the hereafter, whereby human beings become gods and increase their posterity eternally. Thus, while Christianity is similar to its Judeo Christian siblings in its sexual ethics and value for family, it's notably different from its siblings in the affirmation of singleness as a gift and a valued lifestyle within the life of the believing community. This difference, as we shall see, is more than simply an enlightened relegation of the marriage decision to the realm of individual choice, but relates to something fundamentally distinct within Christianity itself, namely the atoning work of Jesus Christ. In other words, as Christians, we draw a positive view of singleness because of Jesus. And it is because of our view of Jesus uh, that sets us apart from our siblings, Mormonism included. Okay. Now, this transition is seen in the biblical record itself. In the Old Testament, we only find one person who is called to a life of celibate singleness. Where somebody is designated by God, this is the path that I've chosen for you. And it's the prophet Jeremiah. Now, when we look, when God does this in Jeremiah, we find how negative... The Old Testament's view of singleness and celibacy truly is. Here in Jeremiah chapter 16, beginning at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, you shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning the mothers who bore them, and the fathers who fathered them in this land. They shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And so it's a pretty intense passage here, and we need to recognize that God is not sparing Jeremiah from impending difficulty— that would be made worse by the harm it would cause people he loves most dearly. Obviously, God could have just as easily protected Jeremiah's spouse or his children in the same way that he will protect Jeremiah through all of these things. Instead, he was to live prophetically, putting on display the isolation and the aloneness that was about to happen because of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's impending judgment. However, when we get to the New Testament, we see singleness positively uh, portrayed, and not just one counterexample, but consistently. First and foremost, we see this in Jesus. Okay, Jesus never took a wife, never had any children, and it's worth noting that he started his ministry just around the time when most Jewish men would begin their careers, find a spouse, and settle down. And so we're told specifically here in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age, okay? Now, we get very used to, in modern writings about people's lives, biographical works, very specific details, okay? Dates, descriptions, okay? How many Bible characters can you actually tell me what they look like biblically, We know that Esau was ruddy, whatever that means, right? Uh, We know that David and Sarah were attractive, but you can't describe them. That's very different than modern writing, isn't it? In the same way, uh, this is one of the few timestamps in all of the writings we have about Jesus' life. We know that he began his ministry at the age of 30. We also know right around his bar mitzvah age, right, when he first comes to Jerusalem as a man in the Jewish tradition, the age of 12. But both of those are not just datables. They're significant. And here, the significance is because of the stage of life Jesus is beginning in his 30s. Uh, Notice William Loder here says, for this reason... um, I don't remember the reason, and that's just the beginning of the quote. Most men apparently married at around 30 years of age when they would have gained sufficient to be able to start such a household. It's probably no coincidence that the Gospels give this as the age of Jesus when he chose his special path instead of doing what most others did and marrying. Not only do we see this in Jesus' example, and let me remind you, that Jesus is not just our example, but the one who died in our place. The one who Hebrews says is a high priest who can sympathize with us because he was tested in all ways, yet without sin. Okay? In other words, Jesus was a full expression of humanity, even though he never married. What I would suggest, it's a little heavy, but I think it's true, What I would suggest is for Christians, if God takes on flesh and the son in his singleness and celibacy is both fully satisfied in God and God is fully pleased with him, that when we deny singleness as a viable option, we dehumanize single people. Because Jesus was the perfect and full human, untainted by the fall, unruined by sin and yet single. Uh, But we also see this in Jesus' teaching. Remember when we began this class, we looked at Matthew 19, where Jesus addresses marriage and lays a relatively hard line in the sand that that, uh, divorce, except for adultery, is adulterous. It's such a hard line that the disciples here say to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry but he said to them not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given and then he talks about who as an example the eunuch for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven let the one who is able to receive it receive it okay now the first two eunuchs we have on this list, as we've talked about, are eunuchs who are first born this way, what the Jews called eunuchs of the sun, what we would call people with uh, sexual development disorders or intersex people, um, people with androgynous genitalia, etc. And so there's people who have been born in a way that is incompatible with what we've seen in marriage and sexuality. Then there are those who are made eunuchs by men. That means they've been castrated as prisoners of war. In other words, that uh, that singleness option, it's better not to marry for them, is uh, is because of what's been done unto them. But the last one here is someone who chooses to be a eunuch. Now, Like many other places in the gospel, I don't believe Jesus is holding or upholding a literal call to castration here, although there have been a few people in the church who have believed that. uh, Origen, the great teacher of the early third century, believed that's what this meant and castrated himself and lived a life in that manner. Um, However, clearly here, his idea is those who would choose the lifestyle of the universe, the lifestyle without marriage or without family for the sake of here, it says the kingdom of heaven. And let me remind you again that here Jesus takes a fringe and despicable and questionable way of being in the Jewish mind and upholds it as an example for the kingdom, a positive view. Okay. Um, and so here Jesus doesn't just make room that marriage won't work out for some people. He also says that it is a viable vocation or calling in the Christian life. Now, I want you to notice um, here that Jesus says um, this. Draw your attention to his statement here. Not everyone can receive the saying that it's better not to marry. Not everybody can embrace that reality, but only those to whom it is given. Okay. When I use the word vocation, that's part of what I'm addressing—a given calling, something that God has given us. An opportunity is what He means here. He says that singleness is a gift. We'll see this in Paul's writing as well. But I want you to notice that that givenness is sometimes expressed, like the final eunuch here, in a life choice a wisdom decision, a reflection on circumstances and a choice that this is better than that. But the other two here are not ruined for the calling of marriage by oppressive sin or by the fact that they were born this way. They're actually given a vocation. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Catholic writer and same-sex attracted woman Eve Touchnett who lives a life of singleness and celibacy, says the church for too long has offered to the homosexual community merely a vocation of no, a calling to not. She says that's not enough. And I want, just, just pulling back the curtain a little bit on where we're going tonight, I want you to see the givenness here is just that. It's a gift. There is a positive view of singleness no matter how you come about it. Um, now we don't just see this in Jesus, but because of Jesus' words here and Jesus's example, we find it in His followers. Okay? Now when we look at the life of the apostles, we can know for sure that some of them are married. For example, the Apostle Peter. Not only do we find in the Gospel of Mark chapter one, that Jesus is in the home of Peter's mother-in-law, and how do you get a mother-in-law right by marriage? Uh, it, we don't always understand that when we have a wedding, but it comes with a mother-in-law. Uh, but also, also, Paul points out that Peter has the right, as he travels from church to church, to bring along, quote, a believing wife, a companion. Okay, But Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7, where we're going to spend most of our time tonight, as a single and celibate person. Now, it may very well be that Paul was married... At some point, okay. The reason why scholars suggest this is not because we find reference to a wife in the writings of Paul, but we do know that he was a Pharisee. And what did we talk about uh, with the view of marriage and rabbinical Judaism? Right? It was essential that you marry and have children to fulfill the first of the 613 commandments that the Pharisees had sworn to uphold and live their life in light of be fruitful and multiply not only that but because of this interesting reference here in Acts 22:20 20, it may even be that Paul was a part of the Sanhedrin okay these were the religious rulers most of whom were Pharisees, who oversaw religious law in Jerusalem, right? We encounter the, or the, um, the Sanhedrin often. That's the people who uh, who judge Jesus. It's the people who tell Peter and G- John no longer to preach in the name of Christ. Those guys. But notice the words here of, uh, of one of Paul's first references in the book of Acts. When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approved and I was watching over the garments of those who killed him. So Paul here is reflecting on watching Stephen die, the first martyr of the church. But notice it says that he was not just standing by, but he approved. This word here for approved is technical language, meaning he gave his vote. He gave his yea to this. And so it may be that he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin and marriage and children were a requirement that office. However, when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, which is quite a few years, maybe 15 to 20 years after what happens with Stephen's death in the book of Acts, he does not seem to be married at the time. Okay? Notice what he says here in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. In verse seven, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And so he recognizes himself as singleness here while he addresses those who have never been married and those whose spouses have died. Now, people love to speculate on why Paul no longer has a wife. It may be that he is a widower, that she has passed away. It may be that she abandoned him as he became a Christian, just as Jesus promised would happen to many of his followers, that it would divide and split up households. We're not told, okay? But it's not just Jesus and Paul, uh, there are other New Testament characters who appear to be single. One of them is an early front runner. Even before Jesus is operating on the scene as a single adult, we have Anna in the temple, right? Anna is a woman who in her old age is serving day and night in the temple and has a high reputation. And she was married at some time, but in her very early on widowhood, it seems that the Greek there implies that seven years into her marriage, her husband died. So relatively young as a woman, maybe in her, uh, maybe still even in her late 20s, um, but more likely in her 30s, she devotes herself to a life of celibacy and service in the temple.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: there are Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, why is it that I think Mary and Martha and Lazarus are single? It's because even though they are adult siblings, they still live together. They share one household right? Although it would have been normative for the women to move out and join the households of their family, most likely they're no longer living with their parents because their parents have passed on, so they live with older brother Lazarus, okay? Uh, There is Tabitha, also known as Dorcas. Remember that Tabitha, when she dies, is mourned by the poor women in the church that she was regularly making clothes for, but no family members are present, there's no one to mourn her from her immediate family. No children, no spouses mentioned. It's the poor women that she's taking care of who are compassionate and on the scene and present. Stephen himself. Stephen, uh, the church's first martyr, appears to be single. Why do I say that? Because after he dies, it's some of the godly men who come and gather Stephen and bury him. It seems again that he is without family and without marriage. Lydia. The woman who uh, Paul meets at a river in the city of Philippi and becomes his first convert there is a very strong businesswoman, and she invites Paul into her household, but there's no reference of a husband. Then obviously, as the early church continues to live on, singleness and celibacy becomes a primary category of being within the church. Now the primary passage on singleness in the New Testament is the one that's on the screen right now, 1 Corinthians 7. Okay. Now throughout this entire chapter, Paul dresses, addresses a whole lot more than singleness. He talks to engaged couples. He talks to currently married couples. He talks to recently widowed women. He talks to people who are currently separated. He talks to people who are considering a divorce. He covers kind of the whole gamut of possibilities here. Um, but regularly and consistently in the passage, he deals with the topic of singleness, okay? That's where we're going to focus, okay? And as we do so, I want to draw out some very specific and clear points. Here's the first one. Singleness is good, okay? Again, look at how Paul starts here in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, we have already talked about, in fact, if you can see it closely on the screen, you can see an open quotation mark and a closed quotation mark after it is good not for a man to touch a woman. This statement is probably not Paul coming out of the gate and saying, it'd be better if you didn't touch the the other sex. Most likely here, he is quoting the letter that he received. In fact, isn't that what he says? Concerning what you wrote me when you said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And we'll see that he actually pushes back against this uh, aesthetic understanding of sexuality. But even if Paul is opening the gate with this statement, even if I'm wrong about that Corinthian slogan, we need to understand what Paul says here. He doesn't say it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman as in terms that it's more holy or that it's better, right? Which is how this has often been read in church history, just that it's flat out good. He doesn't compare it to marriage. He just opens the door for the possibility of it being a good thing. Remember that Paul is a uh, potentially uh, converted member of the Sanhedrin. Definitely a Pharisee, absolutely trained under the uh, under the teaching of Gamaliel. For him, as a rigid Orthodox Jewish man, to say it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman is profound enough, without him having to say that it's better or more holy or preferred or any of that. When we read this, we tend to forget that context. We don't realize how radical it is for him just to take singleness and elevate it to the level of marriage. It's also good. But I would suggest again, that this is actually the words of the Corinthians. Even there, Paul never deals with the Corinthian slogan and just slaps them with a contrary answer. Almost always his answer is, okay, but, okay, he goes, fine, there's a truth there, but there's a more important truth than you're leaving out, right? All things are lawful, but all things are not edifying, right? That's Paul's usual cadence. And so here he opens up the thing, but remember here that the language, whether it's the Corinthian church and he says yes, or it's Paul himself saying this is good, do you think we shouldn't hear resonating in this a reference, a surprising one, but a reference to Genesis chapter 2? How do you reconcile Paul saying it's good for a man to be single When Genesis clearly says it's not good for man to be alone. Do we really think that Paul wouldn't have made the connection? What have we seen consistently when Paul addresses issues of sexuality and gender? Where does he go? That is the entire definition for him of a Christian sexual ethic. And yet here he claims that singleness is good. And it's not just this opening statement. But as we saw, he says, actually, I wish you were all single as I was. In fact, he goes on further, and this is how he finishes the chapter. He actually says, okay, if you want me to be really honest, singleness is better. And if you're widowed, you'll be happier if you remain single. Happier. You know what that word is? It's blessed. Hashtag blessed. Widow. Okay. We cannot wrap our heads around how radical this is. Now, again, knowing that Paul's emphasis on Genesis 2 for issues of sexuality is so consistent, he must have this passage in mind as he says, it is good. Okay. First thing we need to remember here is when God speaks over Adam and says, it's not good that man should be alone. That's not just fixing the bachelor problem, right? As we've seen, there's really three things that Eve brings to the table that Adam is incomplete without. First off, he is wholly and completely, but only, male. And for the image of God, we need male and female. Second, he is single and needs Eve. He needs a wife. And then finally... He needs a community. As we saw, the greatest good that is missing from Adam's life is not a single romantic partner, but the possibility of being fruitful and multiplying, cultivating a, com- a community. As we talked about, that's the, that's the good of those three it-is-not-goods that will exceed even our lives and extend into heaven. Okay. Um, so, so it's not just about the fact that marriage is a God-created good, okay? Um, Second, we need to see this statement in the context of progressive revelation. When I say progressive revelation, what I mean is that God didn't show up in the garden and hand Adam and Eve a fully complete Bible. When Abraham encounters God in the book of Genesis, he doesn't know the Ten Commandments. Right? Although God is constantly, preemptively prophesying of what's to come, the fullness of God's plan, the fullness of his revelation, comes across the epochs of time, slowly and builds upon itself. That's what we call progressive revelation. Also, as we follow the story the Bible tells throughout history, we see that things change. Okay? Sometimes the word we use for this is dispensations. If you have an older translation, you can even find that word in your Bible, in the book of Ephesians. Okay? Oikonomia is the Greek word where we get our word economy. It just means at different times God operated in different ways. And this is not a hard principle to prove because I'm assuming none of you have ever sacrificed a living sheep. Right? That's a different dispensation. What I'm suggesting to you is we can't understand singleness here in 1 Corinthians 7 until we put it where it belongs in the story the Bible tells and specifically the difference again is that Jesus has come. So Jeremiah, singleness is a curse and I want you to be single to prophetically be a curse, right? Here it's good. I wish that all were as I am. It's Happiness, it's better what has changed. Okay. In Christ, first and foremost, as we've seen, according to Ephesians chapter 5 in the book of Revelation, marriage, human marriage between a man and a woman is merely the shadow of the reality that is to come in Christ. It's the sign, but it's not the thing that it signifies. It's a good, but it's mostly just a good picture of a greater good. Okay, and so uh, Ephesians chapter 5, you know, refers to this reality being a mystery, right? If I can remind you of the language, Paul says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, be in submission to your husbands. And then he quotes from Genesis two twenty-four. therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a great mystery. Now that Greek word mysterion, which is where we get our word mystery, doesn't mean riddle. It doesn't mean puzzle or enigma. It means something you would only know if you were told. Okay. This is why uh, Leslie Newbegin's book on the gospel calls the gospel the open secret. What God does in Jesus Christ, you can't discover overturning a shovel or doing a math equation on a board. It involves revelation How do we know who God is and what he's done? Because he has spoken. Mysteries are things that God had hidden in the past, but now has pulled back the curtain and revealed. And so Paul says about marriage, now we know through the ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ that it's just the shadow and the reality is still to come. Now we know that when God spoke this over Adam and Eve, he wasn't just talking about their wedding or every wedding that would follow after, but the wedding. That all weddings point to. That's what he means when he says mystery. Again, all Christians will experience that true marriage. Our union with Christ will continue to deepen until it climaxes and culminates in the unrelenting reality of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that is true whether you are single or married in this life. Not only that. But as we talked about when we talked about the significance of children and family in the Old Testament versus the New Testament community known as the church, remember that we pointed out that the promised seed of woman, the one who God promises will come to Eve and set everything's right, the one who all the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and all of Israel rested upon. The one who was to come, that, uh, that by having children you were moving towards, longing for, even participating in the coming of those blessings, has now come in Christ. So we're no longer seeking the promise to come through the having of children. In Christ, all the blessings God makes available in the Old Testament, even the ones that evoke the having of children, are available to us fully and completely in Christ, with or without a biological family. We have, in fact, been adopted into God's true family, whether we have one of our own or not. Now, this does not mean that singleness is better than marriage, although Paul will go on to show that it is better in some ways. As we've talked about the good here of singleness is radical enough in the mouth of a born and bred Jewish Pharisee. However, much of church history has seen the celibate life as more virtuous or more holy than the married life, which is why the Catholic Church has continued to maintain that it's a requirement for serving as a priest because it is a demonstration of maturity, holiness, and commitment to Christ. And can you imagine what text they have drawn those conclusions from? Of course, from this one. Not just it's good that a man should not touch a woman, but what Paul will go on to say when he says, what I really want to do is secure your devotion to the Lord. And if you have a wife, you will be split in your devotion. Okay? Why do nuns think of themselves as being married to Jesus? It's because of this concept. Okay? Um, but as we will see, that won't hold up. But here's the thing. It's only recently, like since the 1960s, that even the Protestant church seems to have completely flipped on this issue and now sees singleness and single people as somehow second class. Um, In Derek Sherwin Bailey's uh, book, which I have right here and I'm going to pull up specifically. um, Let's see, we'll come back to that we are going to go through the whole passage? Okay, just a second. We'll come back and read that later. All right. Almost there. Good night. Okay. Derek Sherwin Bailey's Sexual Relation and Christian Thought. Uh, which has a different name in Britain or America. I don't remember which this is. I have both copies, and it took me 70 pages to realize I was reading the same book. Um, but, but all he does here is he starts the same place we have in the New Testament, and then he works through and looks at all of the recording writings we have dealing with sexuality throughout the church history. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this book is that he wrote it in 1959 right on the cusp of the sexual revolution. And it's super interesting because even to this point, he maintains that the church needs to knock it off and stop overvaluing singleness. Okay. We'll come back to that in a second, but notice what he says here. The error of the church was to make an artificial distinction between the two vocations, to present celibacy as nobler and more meritorious way, although neither is in fact holier or higher or more pleasing to God than the other and each is after its own fashion offers the fullest opportunities for the practice of religious life and the pursuit of sanctity okay and so he puts clearly here that we need to avoid both errors but what he really presses against in the book is the overvaluing of celibacy but the church that i grew up in doesn't value singleness at all and we see this not just in our our uh, our teaching but in our regular practical conversations we have with one another, the constant harping of, when are you going to get married? Are you seeing anybody? In fact, think of how often we see singleness as being a mark of immaturity that disqualifies someone from significant forms of leadership or even uh, of having a significant role in the church. Let me remind you that when we say a pastor needs to be single or he won't understand marriage issues, that you disqualify not just Paul, but Jesus himself. From speaking into your marriage and I'll be honest as a pastor I speak in issues that I have no experience in all the time like when I address women right like when I address people who are currently divorced and growingly when I address single people because it's been a long time I don't actually remember what that's like in the same way right um, but how did we get here I would postulate this is my theory that the sexual revolution was so radical and Christians felt the need to maintain proper sexual ethics in such a way that we over-elevated marriage in response to it. And in doing so, we have just fallen into the ditch on the other side of the road. And so now is a time where we don't need to say, actually, marriage is good. What we need to say is singleness is also Good. I really like how Rosaria Butterfield puts it. She puts it similarly to this. She says, while marriage is by God's design, God does not design every person for marriage. Okay, and so that's what Paul is recognizing. Okay, so singleness, Paul says, is good. I wish that all were as I am. It's better. It makes me happy. He says these things. What is so good about singleness? First and foremost, it proclaims the sufficiency of Christ and the reality of the blessings found in him. In other words, a positive view of singleness recognizes the fact that everything we need for life and godliness recognizes the fact that every blessing in the heavenly places is fully available to us in Jesus Christ, and that is enough. Think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says... For I've come to the conclusion, brothers and sisters, that there is nothing in this life, whether it's death itself, or sword, or persecution, or authorities, or things that are, or things to come, right? He makes this whole list of all the bad things that can happen in your life, and he says, but none of them can take from you what? The love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know what he doesn't say there? He says, I am thoroughly convinced. He doesn't say, I'm thoroughly convinced, brothers and sisters, that God will preserve all of these other goods in life. He says, the thing I most need cannot be taken from me. It's not subject to change. The love of God is available in Christ. When we understand singleness proclaims to a world that we live in, a world that is obsessed with romantic pairing and even has become idolatrous in its worship of sex, that Jesus is fully and completely sufficient. When we do this, we do something important. Again, Danilek looked at positively as a celebration of the complete sufficiency of Christ, singleness can be a powerful witness for the gospel. Whereas in Judaism, Islam and Mormonism, being married and having children is expected norms. In Christianity, they are not. In choosing a life of singleness for the sake of kingdom service, one can freely demonstrate the complete sufficiency of Christ for being a fully blessed member of the new covenant, right? A card carrying a member, not a second class citizen, despite being without the fulfillment of a spouse and children. All the blessings of the new covenant come to us through Christ. He is the sufficient source. All other material blessings of creation, whether blessings of food, clothing, shelter, monetary provision, healthy bodies, marriage, family, and even life itself, all these utterly pale in comparison to the blessings that God has given us in Christ. He continues, these blessings include, let's make a list, shall we? Our full and complete reconciliation to God himself and our glorious inheritance as members of his eternal kingdom. Nothing, and I mean nothing, can remotely compare with the glory and the weight of these new covenantal blessings to suggest that to be a fulfilled, or a complete Christian in the New Covenant requires anything more than Christ is to deny the fundamental sufficiency of Christ as the sole vehicle of covenantal blessing. But not only does it proclaim this, it does something else as well. It proclaims the dawning of a new age in Jesus Christ that will culminate, as we saw in Matthew, in neither marrying nor given in marriage. In other words, single people are from the future. Now, this just hit me. It's not in my notes, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of homework, but it is fascinating uh, to look at the passage we're about to read in 1 Corinthians 7 and then go back to Jeremiah 16. Both present singleness as being prophetic in nature and saying something about the future. Both of them evoke both the institution of marriage as well as joy and mourning as an illustration of this prophetic calling. But they are tremendously different in that the Old Testament one speaks of impending judgment. And the New Testament speaks of impending abundant blessing, something better. But they are clearly and obviously parallel if you look at them. But let's focus here on the one in 1 Corinthians. Now, Paul does lay out some, some practical realities here. You may even be familiar enough with the passage to know that I already skipped one. He says, it's good for a man not to be married, but let each one have his own wife because of temptation. And some people have gone, okay, that's why marriage is important because some of us can't cut it against our lust. Okay? That's not what Paul means. In fact, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Paul there is most likely addressing men who are seeing prostitutes on the side and are avoiding sex in their own marriage to keep their marriage, their Christian marriage, holy, but their bodies satisfied. Okay? And so Paul's actually saying, if we're going to talk about sexual desires, God's already given you an outlet for that. And he's not talking to single people considering marriage there, but married people. That's why he says, let each husband have his own wife, not another man's wife, not another woman at all. Okay. Um, we'll come back to that, but look at his reason here. First, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, if you watch the New Testament closely, you will see that the way it usually describes time is in two ages, okay? This passing away age and the age that is to come that is actually already dawned in Jesus Christ. In other words, it talks as if there's two overlapping periods, one that extends into the past before Jesus and one that extends into the future after the great white throne judgment, after all of these things. In other words, the kingdom of God is here, it's just not completely here, okay? Jesus's rule has begun, but it hasn't been completely fulfilled, okay? And so when he says the appointed time has grown very short, he's talking about that earlier age, the one that is passing away, okay? He says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. He draws from almost every category of human life. He talks not just about marriage, but the highs and lows of life, your best days and your worst days. And then he talks about uh, uh, buying and selling business. He continues, he says, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? For the present form of this world is passing away. Okay. Now notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say that everybody should divorce their wives because Jesus will be here any minute. He doesn't say quit your jobs because we need to just keep an eye peeled. Right. The idea here isn't that at any minute the world could end. It's that it's present tense ending. And that ending has already began in Jesus Christ. And so what he suggests here is because it's passing away and because there's something else greater replacing it, that it relativizes the goods and bads in life. And so the greatest joys you experience in life are nothing to be compared to the joys that are to come. The greatest lows you experience in life are going to be completely relativized by God setting all things right when Jesus returns. And again, notice he's not saying to single people, hey, don't worry about it. This is where we're all headed. He says to married people, hey, don't overvalue it. Let all people who are married realize that this time is passing away and that marriage is a good, but a temporal and a limited one. Okay. Kostenberger here. If singleness is viewed more positively in the New Testament, that may be at least in part due to the fact that the marriageless final state casts its shadow forward, the future invading the present, as it were. So, in other words, living in the sufficiency of singleness now doesn't just say Jesus is enough right now. It says Jesus is the only thing that will ever be enough. And either you don't have him and you will never find that enoughness, or you can have it right now. It's prophetic. Singleness is a calling that walks out and demonstrates a truth in Christianity. He continues, he says, so that it were already present at time what will or will be the universal state of human beings for eternity. And this has certain advantages for the citizens of God's kingdom. Okay. Danilek, I like this one. There's sometimes a tendency especially among the idealistic young who presume to have most of their years before them, that singleness is a temporary period of one's life until one finds the eternal soulmate in marriage. This passage is a reminder that in the scope of eternity, the opposite is actually the case. Marriage is for a season and a time until, as the traditional marriage vow reads, death do us part. It is as single and free individuals that we will stand before his throne and live for all eternity. So it says, Jesus is enough. It says, the things in this life are passing away. And it also affirms the value of Plutonic relationships. Now, a very close friend of mine is trying to get me to forsake that word, Plutonic, uh, because it suggests that you can have friendships with, without deep emotional ties. And she's absolutely right. The only reason I use it is because it's, it's classic language to contrast with romantic relationships. But the point is... Singleness affirms the value of plutonic relationships, of friendships, and in a sense, it's better freed up to pursue deep friendship with more people. First off, this is true of chastity in general. You can be chaste in marriage or you can be chaste as single. We are all called to chastity. But chastity as a whole makes friendship, deep friendship with the opposite sex possible. As Rosaria Butterfield says, when every relationship is potentially erotic, no relationship has the boundaries it needs. Maintaining a boundary around sexual behavior and making that the exclusive domain of the covenant of biblical marriage is necessary for platonic relationships to maintain their uh, integrity as platonic. But listen, this is the important part. We have lost the ability to be non-sexually same-sex affectionate, and this is a costly human loss. Now I would suggest, at least in the church, we've also lost the ability to be non-sexually opposite-sex affectionate, okay? because we're so protective of this issue and we're so afraid of the power of lust, we really lose out on the and sisters or the and brothers of the body of Christ in its design. Okay, um, but what she says here is true for faithful married folk as well, but it's especially expressed in celibacy. It says, I can have deep, satisfying relationships of commitment, of trust, of caring, of love, apart from one particular form of intimate relationship, which we call marriage. In doing so, it denies the modern idol of apocalyptic romance that says fulfilling life is impossible unless you find the one. Not only that, but it images God in a unique way that marriage does not. Okay, listen to me. What I'm suggesting is because Jesus has come, we need single people to show us a part of God that would be left off the table if all we had was marriages. Okay. Stanley Grenz here. Singleness, on the other hand, constitutes an equally powerful image of yet another dimension of the divine reality as the one who loves, namely the universal, non-exclusive, and expanding nature of divine love right? When we say God is love, he was love before you were. He was love before anything was, right? The father loving the son, the spirit loving the father and the spirit loving the son and the son loving the spirit, all of that happening perfectly and completely all the time. But God didn't stop there, did he? He didn't settle for a complete love, but he created people to love. Not because he needed them, But because that's how great God's love is, that it's constantly expanding, it's constantly overflowing. That's the idea that is uh, being touched on here, the universal, non-exclusive, and expanding nature of divine love. This may be seen by means of a contrast to marriage. The marriage bond is fundamentally exclusive, broadened only insofar as the entrance of children, as the fruit of that exclusive love of the spouses expands marriage into the family bond, in contrast the bond formed by single persons is less defined and as a result is more open to the inclusion of others. Now, interestingly here, um, before we move on to this next point, uh, this is something that C.S. Lewis understood. He understood that friendship is made greater and deeper by the involvement of more people. Now, it doesn't mean that true friendship involves a nation of relationships but it does involve more than two people. He says that when Charles Taylor, who was one of the Inklings, a friend of his, when Charles Taylor died, he lost a part of J.R.R. Tolkien because there was a part of Tolkien that only Charles had access to and only Charles drew out. This is why when we really rightly understand friendship, we seek to share that friend and not jealously keep them from other relationships. But notice what he says next. He says, As such, the less formal bonding of singleness reflects the openness of divine love to the continual expansion of the circle of love to include within its circle those yet outside its boundaries. Friendship love is inherently evangelistic in a way that marriage is not supposed to be. It goes out and it finds the people to love. It seeks the people to love. In fact, uh, Grenz points out that God's love is not just evangelistic and seeking, but it takes the cost of that relationship on itself. Look at this. Celibacy reflects the divine will to community that takes upon itself the cost of establishing community. Now do you understand what he's talking about theologically there? How is it that God brought you into relationship with himself with a death on a cross? God's love was not just theoretical It wasn't just shown in divine favor, but sacrificially taking on your separation, your suffering, and your sin so that he could bring you into relationship with himself. Singleness always and consistently bears this reality. In fact, it's one of my favorite things about my single friends. They will bear the cost of the relationship willingly and fully, they will be the one who calls. They will be the one who develops the friendship. They will be the one who seeks the other out. Okay? And so there is a way that single love, the love of friendship, the love of people within the church who are single in celibacy, give us another facet of the image of God that we would be at a loss with if all were married and the only relationships we had were individual pairings of one person with another. Or even, uh, on top of that, the procreation and, and the relationship of children. We need not just God as father, not just Christ as husband, but also God as friend. All right. Let's go ahead and take a 13-minute uh, a break. It's 7.57, so we'll begin at 8.10 again. Um, and tonight, because I'm not sure how it's going to work out and I need some more tea, we'll save questions till the end. Room. So, all right. Okay. So, singleness is good. That's point one. Point two, we've already talked about it, but now I want to focus on it. Singleness is a gift. Okay? It's a gift. And so, again, notice what Paul says here. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. Okay, So here Paul just says, some people have different gifts. One of the gifts that I have is singleness. Now the question we have to ask is, what does Paul mean by gift here? Does he mean a spiritual gift? Does he mean that he's in some way uniquely enabled to be alone in a way that other people aren't? That is a way that many people have understood this word. And to be fair to that argument, that this is a God-given ability to be single. Okay, a superpower, if you will. To be fair to that argument, the word here for gift is the word charis, which is the same word used for the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, just a few chapters later. Okay? And so in this same letter, Paul addresses all sorts of gifts. Like he says here, there's a variety of gifts. And there he says that there's a variety of gifts. It may be the gift of teaching or the gift of ge- giving, etc. okay? Um, this is Danelik, who I've mentioned many times. This is his view of this passage. Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 is perhaps the closest we come to a definition of a charisma, which is just a transliteration of this word charis, okay? Uh, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. There are three essential points here about a charisma or spiritual gift. First, it's selective. That is, a particular gift is given selectively, selectively, not generally. Not everybody has the gift of teaching or the gift of helping or the gift of giving. Second, a charisma is a manifestation of the spirit. In other words, it's something that God is doing, not a natural talent. Right? And then finally, uh, it says here, not finally, the connotation of the Greek word for manifestation, phanerosis, is the classical word was one of the astronomical appearances. Something becomes visible, manifest. A spiritual gift, therefore, is a divine enablement in which the spirit is revealed among the people of God. Okay. So, side note, here's how I generally think about spiritual gifts. The majority of the gifts that God gives are things that all Christians do some of the time. In fact, many of them are things that all Christians are supposed to be doing. Again, let me point to giving. Or teaching. Did you know that Hebrews addresses an entire church congregation and says, by now, you should all be teachers. Okay. But your gifts are these things that are greater than the sum of their parts, where God does with them something more than just what it is on its own. Okay. So, for example, all of us are called to encourage, but when you encounter someone with the gift of encouragement, it's more than that somehow. I'll tell you what it's like for me standing up here teaching. It's absolutely normal. But I'm surprised when God uses it in ways that are more than what appears to me to just be normal, okay? That's what he's suggesting here. And so to review, one, Danilic points out a gift uh, is selective. Not everybody has it. It's spirit-given. It's an empowerment by God. And then finally, it, uh, it's a manifestation. Uh, the third, it's for the mutual advantage or common good of the body or Christ as a whole. Remember, that's Paul's big point in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Don't use your gifts to do stuff for yourself. Don't use your gifts to make a big show so people think how gifted you are. Use it to build, to edify, to love, right? Okay, now notice what he says then about singleness. The charisma of singleness is a spirit-enabled freedom to serve the king and kingdom wholeheartedly without undue distraction for the longings of sexual intimacy and marriage and family Now, I'm kind of nailing this down because I want to give you one of the best versions of this argument out there, but I think you're already familiar with it. You probably know people who are unwillingly or undesirably single. And when this idea of singleness is presented, they just say, but I don't have that gift. Okay. Now, um, this would mean that if you don't have the gift of singleness, then you should by all means get married. And it may even be that we could make a case that that's exactly what Paul says as well. So notice what here he says, after saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So if you're tempted, by all means, get married. There's an app for that, right? He repeats again here in verse 6. He says, do not deprive one another. Speaking to a couple that's married, except perhaps an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay. So another way we put this is that the gift of singleness is a level of self-control that helps you control your body and not be sexually active outside of marriage. Okay. However, I think there's a better way to understand um, that this singleness is a gift whether temporary or permanent. Now notice tonight I said that singleness is a gift, not a vow. Nowhere in the New Testament does Paul p- call people to a vow of singleness. He calls them to consider singleness where they're at in life, but he doesn't say if you choose it, it's yours till you die. Okay? We get this idea of a vow of celibacy right, from the Catholic Church and their practice, but it doesn't line up with what we see biblically. Um, And so, uh, I mean, this is one of the things that I would point out to you. Um, All of you were, are, maybe will be single at some time. Do you get a pass on your sexual behavior because you'd rather not be? So how do we understand this? I would say that the idea in 1 Corinthians 7 is not of a spiritual gift, not a divine empowerment by the Holy Spirit, an ability to be unmarried, but Paul is using it in a broader sense of just a blessing of God, okay? that singleness is a gift. Okay? In fact, when he compares gifts, he says, I wish that all were as I myself in, but each one has his own gift. I would suggest to you that the gifts on the table there are marriage and singleness. Okay, that God gives different gifts to different people. Okay? Uh, Von Roberts. When Paul speaks of singleness as a gift, he isn't speaking of a particular ability some people have to be contentedly single. Rather, he's speaking of the state itself of being single. Okay. In other words, earlier I used the word vocation. Now, vocation and gift are connected. Vocation and vow not necessarily. And so, again, don't hear vow. But what I'm suggesting to you is if you are currently single, that is your calling. Okay? Until that calling changes. And it's a good calling. And that's what Paul is trying to convey here. Okay? The state of being single is a gift. Okay? Marriage also is not a spiritual gift. Okay? It is, however, referred to as a gift in the Bible. Uh, Let's finish Vaughn off here. As long as you have it, singleness, it's a gift from God, just as marriage will be God's gift to you if you ever receive it. We should receive our situation in life, whether it's singleness or marriage, as God's gift or God's grace to us. Marriage is referred to as a gift. In Proverbs here, the one who finds a wife, finds what's enjoyable, and receives a pleasurable gift from the Lord. A spouse is a gift. Now, that doesn't just mean you should sit on your couch and wait for it. Because it also says the one who finds a wife finds a good thing, right? There's a balance to be understood here, but marriage is recognized as being a gift in the same way that children are. What we need to get through our heads is that singleness, Paul says, is a gift that is different, but a good one, even though it's good in different ways. Remember that Jesus not only mentions eunuchs who choose singleness, Uh, as being those who can receive, it's better not to marry, but also those who are born and made eunuchs. If your body is born in a way that is incongruent with the sexual relationship God has designed for marriage, he has given you a good calling, even though it's a different calling. Now, you can probably already tell why this point is important to me. Because if you find yourself to be exclusively same-sex attracted, and you find the design of God for marriage to be strictly male and female, but you do not have a spiritual empowerment for singleness, then you are condemned to a life of solitude. Which is why Matthew Vine says, we don't have to go far to see if God would grace same-sex marriages, because Genesis 1 says, it's not good that man should be alone, and your view condemns me to isolation, which is clearly against God's will. And so we need to think fully and completely on these things but Jesus provides the category of eunuch not just for those who will choose singleness for the sake of the kingdom but for those who find themselves in circumstances wanted or unwanted chosen or unchosen that does not leave God's design for marriage as an option. Um, uh, On top of that This also explains the following passage where Paul calls for contentment in our current situation. This is just a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 7, and notice what he says here. He says, I wish that everyone was as I am, but each one has his own gift from God, one this way and another that. I don't want Matthew. That's what we just talked about with the eunuchs. I want here. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, only. Remember, how many types of people does he talk to in 1 Corinthians 7? Engaged people, married people on the brink of divorced people, divorced people, widows. He covers the gamut of possibilities, and in the middle it says this: Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was one anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called was a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price, so don't become the bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. What's the context of these illustrations? Is he really here primarily talking about circumcision and slavery? No, he's illustrating from other fields to talk about marriage and singleness. Okay. And so the idea, again, of a gift is the fact that God is sovereignly working in your life and gives people different callings, different vocations. Okay. And sometimes those vocations are single. Or, uh, sometimes those vocations are seasonal. Again, maybe you are currently married. God may call you to singleness by calling your spouse home. Okay. And it may be, and Paul talks to those who, uh, who uh, are widowed and gives them permission to remarry only in the Lord, but he also says, but you should really think about the possibilities of singleness. Okay. Although it's better to marry than be sexually immoral, Any single person who does not have the present option to marry has all they need for sexual holiness, period, because they have Jesus Christ. Okay, consider also in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now I want you to notice there that when Paul says God will give you escape in such a way that you can endure it, it's not an escape from the temptation. It's an escape through it, In other words, if we were to talk about temptations that come in singleness here, God's way of escape is not always a spouse, but it's always a way of escape, readily available in Jesus Christ. Again, this is especially important for people who find themselves exclusively attracted to the same sex. They aren't condemned to singleness and left without the ability to fulfill it with the gift of celibacy. Okay. So, it's good, it's a gift, but also it's one of multiple gifts. And so, point three, marriage and singleness isn't about sin and righteousness. Let me say that again. Marriage and singleness is not about sin and righteousness. It neither adds nor subtracts anything from your holiness. Notice here, Paul says, but if you do marry, okay, this is right after the passage we just read, isn't it? He says, live in the condition you were called. And then he finishes by saying, are you free? Do not seek to be bound. Are you bound to a wife? Don't be seek to be free from her. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Okay. It's not an issue of sin. If you're sitting here tonight and going, oh, I'm feeling guilty because I'm engaged, Paul says, don't worry about it. He's not suggesting this is righteous and this is unrighteous. He's not suggesting this is good and this is bad in the sense of holiness. He's not even saying this is a better way or a closer way. It's a different way. Again, notice here in verse 36. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do so as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. He says, if you want to get married, fine. Now, Paul's concern here is that people would worry that marrying is sinful, but in our day, we need to emphasize the other side. He who does not marry is not in sin. Okay? It's not a clear um, defamement of his character. Now, there are a lot of bad reasons to be single. That's not what I'm saying. But we can't assume, again, that the single person is merely an uncompleted Christian or an immature new convert who will get there eventually. We can't assume that because someone is single, there must be something wrong with them and God is punishing them. It's not an issue of sin. Jennifer Marshall, herself a single woman, says a person's calling may include, but will never be limited to marriage. If you're married tonight, that is not your sole vocation. Even those who do marry, the marriage relationship is not the sum total of their callings. To reduce the idea of callings to single relationship, even one as central as life-changing as marriage, is to miss the point. Getting married, in other words, shouldn't be a measure of any woman's success in life. It's not about sin and righteousness, and we have to drive out all of these places where we manifest this. Oftentimes not out of intention, but inattention. In the way that we treat people in the church. Single people should have full participation in the body of Christ. In fact, they should experience the fullness of what it means to have this New Testament church family. Which, as we saw earlier, is more significant than the marriage relationship. Or than the existence of biological children. And if you don't believe me, read the late chapters of Isaiah. Where he says you barren woman what God's going to do in the suffering servant, servant you will bear more children than the mother of many right? God is doing something new something greater and so it's full participation Okay, so it's good, it's a gift it's not about sin or righteousness point four, there are practical advantages to being single Paul lays out some right here he says yet those who marry would have worldly trouble and I would spare you that. He says there are some challenges that come with marriage that aren't a part of singleness, okay? He says I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Now Paul is not being critical here. He's just talking about the fact that marriage involves a covenant, a commitment to exclusively and fully love another person. And so it takes up a part of your concern, a significant part of your energy. It should be reflected in your budget, right? All of those things are true of marriage. But there is freedoms that come from not being, as we sometimes say in culture, tied down. Sometimes when my family of seven goes through the airport, it looks like that slow motion scene from The Right Stuff. Everybody sees us and knows that we are something special because it's a big deal to carry five kids under the age of ten and five car seats onto an airplane and through security, okay? But other times, it is exactly like that scene out of Home Alone, right? And I'm amazed we haven't left a child at the airport yet, okay? The truth is, it's a lot easier to fly and to travel without children, have you noticed? Okay. And there are goods to traveling. And I'm not just talking about finding your fulfillment on some Tahitian island. I'm talking about actual life-giving callings. Okay. And so here he mentions anxiety. In fact, he goes on and he illustrates. He says his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, but how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. Again, we tend to read this word worldly, and we instantly read evil. That's never what the Bible means by worldly. It means merely worldly. Okay. But notice he continues here, and he says, "I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord." He says, "I want to do this because it's good for you." You know what? Having more time for Jesus is a blessing not a curse, okay? And that's what he's saying here. He's, he says there are options, there are possibilities we need to consider. He picks it up again a little bit later in the chapter, chapter, in the conclusion. He says, so then, he who married his betrothed does well. It's not an issue of sin, but notice what he says, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. There is no getting around this. Honestly, for most of us in the church, I would settle tonight for you walking home thinking singleness is good. Singleness is better might be, you know, uh, an advanced course, okay? But remember that Paul is speaking this from a significantly long life of singleness and following Jesus. This is not theoretical for Paul. He's expressing his heart from his own experience. He says a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, okay? So if you're married, singleness is not an option right now. Stop thinking about it, okay? Okay? He says, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as it is. And I think I too have the spirit of God. Okay. And so here um, he says, singleness has less worldly trouble. In fact, specifically, he mentions present distresses. And like I've said in the past, that present distress that he's refer- referencing is either famine or persecution singleness is a less troubling option when life is really hard when things are really dangerous it's one thing to be hungry it's another to watch your children starve it's the one thing to die for your faith it's another to watch another thing to watch them kill your spouse in front of you okay um you know, this is, this is why the Death Cab for Cutie song says love is watching someone die. There's pain that comes with marriage. You know, we don't know what's handed to us. It might be an accident that disables them physically or mentally for life. Some of you sitting in this room are going to watch their spouse's mind decay into oblivion until you're forgotten. Now, it's not that there aren't beauty in those things, but there's clearly pain. There's clearly difficulty. Singleness has less anxiety, and it leaves more room for devotion to Jesus. That's why many of the world's missionaries traditionally have been single. My friend Chris Rep, who you may know, she gets around. She always signs off her missionary emails, honeymooning with Jesus. She understands this. She doesn't feel like she's been relegated to second class in the kingdom. She's been privileged. And part of that privilege is her calling to singleness. If John Piper were here, he would tell you, don't waste your singleness. If you're single right now, that's an opportunity, not just a holding pattern. It's a a blessing God has given you right now to do more than you could if you were currently married. To be in more places, to serve more people, to have more friendships. And then finally here, as we see, singleness is happiness. The word Paul uses here is the same one in the Beatitudes. It's a blessing of course, we can point out that marriage and family have their own blessings. But I don't think we're going to get away from the fact that Paul says happier, more blessed here. Okay? We should wrestle with that, especially if you're married or if you're uncomfortable with your singleness. Work at this. Think about it until you get there. Remember, it's a beatitude. Jesus' beatitudes don't make sense on first read. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the reality of the kingdom of God that changes all of these things. It changes the math and it changes the math on singleness. Okay. So. I have some closing and practical thoughts. Okay. Mistakes that we can uh, root out that will cause lots of problems here, or maybe even discouragements that you already have. First The call to singleness, whether it's temporary or permanent, is never a call to be alone. It's never a call to isolation. When it says in Genesis, it's not good for human beings to be alone, it means you. And to that degree, Matthew Vines is rightly applying that passage. The problem is, unfortunately, Matthew Vines sees the only significant relationship in his life being one of romantic love. But there is so much more in human life by God's design, and, uh, and so that is not good there. It expresses our need for community, and that's true of all singles because single people are truly and actually human. Okay. As we saw weeks ago, according to the New Testament, family is optional, but church membership, church participation is not. And the church is a place to find and develop deep and fruitful relationships of discipleship, of service, of mentorship, of brothers and sisters, of mothers and fathers, and that is true for single people as well. Closely related to this, the call to singleness is not a call to have no interaction with the other sex. We have to recognize that both through the lens of the sexual revolution and through some puritanical bents that the church has engaged with for a long time, we have a tendency to see the only appropriate relationship between men and women being one in marriage. But we need to have room for the brothers and sisters of the Bible to actually be that type of relationship. It's a close cross-gender relationship, isn't it? And Paul's careful. What does he say Paul Timothy? Treat the younger women as sisters with all purity. But that's also how you treat your sisters and your family. So it's not hard to know what that looks like. Um, The it is not good that expresses male and female interdependence is true of all singles, again, because all singles are human. If you are a man here tonight, you need women in your life. If you're a woman, you need men in your life. Again, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, you were built for that. You need that. Here, Derek Sherwin Bailey again, but whether the Christian is called to celibacy or to marriage, he may not forget that in a sense, more profound perhaps than intended by the apostle, neither is the woman without the man, nor the man without the woman in the Lord. That's also a verse from 1 Corinthians. There is an interdependence of the genders, and that includes all people. Upon married and singles alike, God lays the same... Inelocutable obligation to live in belongingness, one sex with the other, and from this there can be no dispensation. Again, this is a mistake we've made with vows of celibacy, because the primary place where that's been lived out is in the monastery, right? Which is a place of single gender, and that leads to significant deficiencies in humanity and tons of other problems, and we shouldn't be surprised. Um, I've mentioned to you before the sexual minorities group that meets on Capitol Hill for people who are struggling with same-sex attraction. It is intentionally co-ed because all of those men and women need respectively women and men. And so it's not a call to isolation. It's just a call to singleness and celibacy. I misplaced my page here just a second here we go finally and fully for us to discover this and I don't mean as individuals because God doesn't call us to anything as individuals he calls us to things as a church Paul's address here is not to single people but single people in the church his address to married people here is not to married people but to married people in the church for singleness to function Practically as a blessing and not a curse, the church needs to cultivate, cultivate a community that makes this possible. We have to live in such a way that this can actually be true because where is the primary place where these blessings of singleness are found? If not in the church. Celibacy, Janelle William Paris says, should be an invitation, not a punishment. In order for it to be an invitation worth responding to, however, Christian communities must cultivate plausibility structures for sexual holiness in which long-term celibacy becomes not just moral, but also plausible and practical. And let me remind you that this is not just an issue for people who get it about singleness. We live in an increasingly single world. And so if if we're going to be a church for this increasingly single world, we're going to have to figure out how to do this in a way where sexual holiness, despite the tide of the world around us, is actually viable and fully fulfilling within the church. And again, this is not just about accountability. It's not just about making sure people don't cross boundaries. It's about calling them into the beautiful flourishing that God has already given us. The only reason God has given us walls is because he's created a garden. And when we make the mistake of Adam and Eve and see that God has somehow starved us of a good when in actuality he's given us a whole orchard of possibilities and only asked us to avoid one fruit, then we misunderstand and even deny the goodness of God. Okay. This means that the possibilities and values of the single life need to be taught. For those of you who are teachers, for those of you who are pastors, for those of you who do Sunday school classes, have you ever done a message on marriage? I assume so. Have you done one on the good calling of singleness? If it's an equally viable option, then it should be equally publicly presented as a viable option. Second, a culture needs to be created that sees singleness as viable and holy. Teaching is one way to do that. Examples is another. One of the things we need to do is take people who do singleness and do it well and to the fullest and make sure they have an opportunity to represent themselves to the church as an example. More than any time in church history, I believe that we need single people to take up the vocation of pastor and elder because they have a church full of single people that they will uniquely and specifically understand. Um... One of my friends that I've gotten to know is a pastor, um, and actually he is married, but he's in what they call a mixed-orientation marriage. He finds in himself an exclusive and persistent attraction to the same sex, but he and his wife have been married for 27 years, and his wife, Renee, was telling me, she said, you know, Dan gets most of the counseling appointments because they know he understands, I listened to Mark Yarhouse address a room of same-sex attracted people who were Christians and devoted to following Jesus in celibacy or mixed orientation marriage. And he said, you have become such a great example to me in following in Christ because every day you say no for a greater yes. But let me remind you, that's the calling of all Christians to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and to follow him. Now we know full and true that at the end of that crucifixion, is an Easter, a resurrection, a life on the other side. And some of those we find in fresh and new places. Death to marriage produces this amazing fruit of deep and broad and diverse friendships. I did mention this, but only in the negative. It is true. Structures must be put in place for accountability and for sexual holiness. And let me just remind you that in the world we live in, that should no longer be the domain of men of men's groups, of men's retreats. Pornography has become extensively a co-ed obsession, one that is uh, working very heavily. Okay. Also, singles must interact with the whole diverse body of Christ for mutual benefit. Thinking that the way we take care of singles in the church is just to have a singles ministry misunderstands how the body of Christ works. Paul says that it's the diversity that God has given us in the body that edifies the body. If you're single, you need to be around and to live around married people, and actually, they need you. And not just to babysit for date night. They need you at their dining room table. They need you on their vacations. I read a book, I don't even remember which one it was, but this was the phrase it used for how the church should operate in households, that we should have relatively porous households. Not defined by biological blood, but a little bit more flexible than that. When the church is operating as it should, single people should be handed house keys and say, we want you to know that our house is yours. Come whenever you like. A friend of mine um, has been in foster care for a long time, and when I was getting to know him, he was telling me the age of his foster care children. And he's like, well, we've adopted three kids. One's four, one's seven, and one's twenty-five. And I stopped him and I leaned forward and I said, you can't be older than 32. How is it that you have a 25-year-old daughter? And he said, well, we adopted her when she was 17. And I said, wait a minute. She was in the foster care program. At 18, she ages out. Why did you adopt her? And he said, well, we knew she didn't need parents, but she did need a family. That is the gospel. That is an understanding of how humans need relationships. And a, a way that Christianity fully understands and embraces reflecting those things. Okay. We, need, uh, we need single people to be interacting at every level of our church. And it's not just for their sake. It's not just a plausibility structure for them. It's to temper our own foolish misunderstandings and myopic views of marriage. It's to broaden out our reality beyond, you know, the lovey-dovey, face-locked reality that marriage can sometimes be where we forget there's a world out there at all. It meets needs that we have that our spouse will never, because that's just who they are, without leading to a starvation that was never designed in your life. Again, your spouse was not designed to complete you. And although we can point out Jesus was, and that's true, we've already talked about that, The way that he primarily does that is through the diverse community we call the body of Christ. And so you don't just need Jesus. That's why you can't be a Christian on a forsaken island all by yourself. How would you even go about the one another's of the New Testament? Okay. And so we need to rediscover and re-embrace these things. uh, And until we do, the body of Christ is losing some of the facets of reflecting to the world the uniqueness of who Jesus is, the uh, emphasis of the relationships made available to us in the church as being primary, Um, as well as the goodness of a viable vocation that God has given his people as a gift and not a curse. Father, every time I go through this message, being now 14 years, almost 15 into my marriage, I hear voices quietly in the back of brains saying, that's easy for you to say. And I think that's true. But we have to recognize, we have to wrestle with the fact that I didn't say these things. That this is the living word of God that God has declared singleness because of the coming of Christ and the provision of the church as a community as a good and viable option for a flourishing and God-honoring life. And I ask, Lord, that you would just hear our confession tonight as a church collectively, Lord, of where we have fallen short of making this possible, of living in such a way that people in our high schools People in college, people who have been widowed would go, yeah, marriage is an option, but singleness is too. Lord, for us, this need to find the one can sometimes be an existential crisis, even in the church. Help us to be a church where that's not true, where we can weigh things and not just the bads of singleness against the goods of marriage, But the goods of singleness against the goods of marriage and the bads of marriage against the bads of singleness, Lord, help us to be even-handed in these things. But most importantly, Lord, teach us how to love one another. Teach us how to be a community that manifests this diverse and multifaceted, each with their own gift, each with their own calling, each their own part in the body to play love, that, that we need to be the church. Because we know that when each part is doing its own part, it builds up the body in love. We ask that you'd help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen.